Uh, welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, that would be great. So I love to be able to see people as I'm uh, communicating. So if that can work for you, um, much appreciated. So I want to continue with the theme that I initiated uh, last time, which is looking at the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. We looked at that last time, and at the end of the uh, time together, I invited people to explore that theme during the coming week. How many people gave some attention to looking at the judgmental mind in the last week? Yeah, that's, that's great. So we can come back, uh, especially in the discussion, and hear from some people, if they wish, to share some of what was explored. And I, I've highlighted this theme as a very crucial theme in our practice that isn't always given so much attention, or sometimes when it is given attention, I think it can be done in a confusing way. What I'm going to suggest is that the judgmental mind, what I'm calling that being very judgmental of self or judgmental of others, is an issue. It's a major issue. It obviously, when we look at it, it can lead to a lot of... Uh, a lot of pain for ourselves, a lot of pain and confusion. When we judge ourselves harshly, it can lead to challenges in relationships. It can lead to many, many kinds of issues. Last time, one of the themes we looked at is how the judgmental mind often surfaces with people looking for social change or social justice among those we might sometimes call activists. And that's an issue there, too, as well. It can lead to a certain level of uh, polarization, dysfunctionality uh, of organizations, and so forth, and, and, has done, and has done that. So it's an area that's really uh, crucial to look at. And, um, you know, one of the ways I framed it last time uh, gets at some of the paradox of the judgmental mind, which is that often the way I'll be defining, the way I defined the judgmental mind last time, was in terms of it combining both very often, not always in an obvious way, but very often combining insight or noticing or an important observation with reactivity. Another way that I said it last time was, we can be both right and obnoxious. <laughs> Interesting way to talk about it. Right? We can be both right and obnoxious towards ourselves or towards others or both. Right? And um, it would be nice if that wasn't the case. And I said sort of the hidden internal logic of judgments basically is something like, if I'm right, whatever goes. We almost like we don't really say that explicitly to ourselves, but we might say it implicitly, right? Hey, if I'm right about this, if I'm right about what you did that was wrong, you know, I can say anything. 
Yeah, that's okay. I can be uh, obnoxious, but you're the problem, not me. <laughs> right? Something like that. And so, um, very, very interesting. And what I suggested last time is that a simple formula for working with and transforming the judgmental mind is that we, through different practices, both uh, inner practices, especially inner practices, we learn how to separate out the insight in the judgment from the reactivity. We transform the reactivity and lessen it tremendously so that we're able more and more to use the insight skillfully for the purposes of compassionate action. That's the formula for our entire work. Easier said than done, right? Last time I showed a cartoon of, um, it was a cartoon called The Surgery, which had uh, an image of a man in a hospital bed. Next to him was a surgeon who had a little bottle, and there was a little human-like figure in the bottle, and it said, Congratulations, Mr. Meguen, we've successfully removed your inner critic. <laughs> Would that it were so easy, right? Right? Uh, it's, and it, it, it can take some time because, you know, as we'll see, in many cases, the judgments represent very old patterns that we've repeated thousands, if not millions of times. And so the transformation can take a while, but the key point is that we transform the judgmental mind. We don't simply squash it or get rid of it, right? And I've actually seen other psychological and spiritual teachers who basically counsel getting rid of it, squashing it. For me, that, number one, doesn't really work. And number two, we lose the... Um, actual insight that can be connected with the judgment. Again, maybe that level of insight is most obvious if we talk about the judgmental mind with activists. Can very, very easily see injustice, right? It can be, but it be, can be connected with being very judgmental of one's opponents, people on the other side, or even people who don't have quite the right position like we do. Right? right? And so... Um, really, really crucial to see that the aim is transformative. And we'll look further today at further ways to practice to transform the judgmental mind and uh, also some deeper ways of understanding the judgmental mind and understanding some of the, uh, the roots, the deeper roots, which I didn't really cover uh, last time. So maybe first to just give a few further examples of the judgmental mind. You can think of the ones that are present for you. You know, um, when I was first looking at judgments in my own experience a lot, I was coming off a period of about nine years of being connected with a graduate school. And I thought, I, I think I mentioned this last time, I thought I had not done 
adequate spiritual practice. And I was very judgmental of myself. I was very hard on myself for not having done more spiritual practice. And I was also quite judgmental of my colleagues. They're not spiritual enough. You know, it wasn't quite so polite, let's say, you know. And that, that, that was surfacing after a period of time. And we'll come, can come back to those examples. So it can be self-judgment. I didn't do this right, or, you know, I'm not, you know, I made a mess of things, or I didn't interact with these people. Okay. can be self-judgment. It can be, can be deeper self-judgment about, you know, oneself. You know, I'm, you know, something is wrong with me. I'm weird, or I'm not okay. Uh, there can be, um, here's, let's go to our, our first slide, Carlita. Here's a cartoon called Self-Mockingbird. The mockingbird's looking in the mirror and saying, I fly funny. I really do. That gut, why can't I lay off the nuts? My voice is so annoying. So we can think of uh, the counterparts for ourselves. We can let go of the slide now. Does anyone look in the mirror and sometimes have judgmental thoughts? Anyone ever done that? <laughs> okay, a lot of hands up there, right? So much like self-mockingbird, right? We can judge other people for what they do. Sometimes, again, we can have some validity on our side. You know, uh, we had an agreement. My friend didn't keep it, you know? My friend showed up... Uh, half an hour late for our lunch, right? We can see things, be very judgmental. We can be judgmental, obviously, of political figures, you know, uh, can be judgmental of the presidential candidates in various ways. Uh, a lot of, lot of possibilities. Um, again, uh, self-judgment can be very strong. I mentioned last time how the Dalai Lama, when he first came in contact with self-judgment of Westerners, he was very confused. And he said it took him several years talking with Western psychologists to really get a little bit of a handle on it. And again, uh, the same issues uh, aren't there in the same way. They have their issues. And again, I'm not at all saying one culture is better than the other, not saying that, but different issues, right? Um, another joke. I've been, I've been collecting uh, judgment jokes. So if you have any, you can pass them on. Here's another one. Um, this is a self-hatred uh, joke in a way, or self-judgment joke. Okay. Um, a person is told, you will receive $50,000, but only on the condition that the person you hate the most will receive $100,000. The response of the person is, wonderful, how could I turn down $150,000? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> A little bit intense there, right? And so we have, we have a sense of the, uh, you know, examples of judgments. And again, maybe to review something that I said last time, just for sake of clarity, 
I mentioned last time how it's really important to be careful with the language because in English we use the word judgment sometimes to mean being judgmental but we also sometimes mean it more neutrally simply to mean a noticing her discernment you know uh, I looked outside and I looked at the soil and made the judgment that we had been overwatering the plants that would be normal English or you know the uh, uh, the doctor made the judgment that this is the medical condition that's that's there for you you know we would sometimes use English like that and so we want to be careful with the language I will in our talk I will use the word judgment to mean judgmental while recognizing that it's not always used that way simply for the sake of clarity and I'll use the word discernment to mean a noticing or a seeing in which there's not reactivity the judgmental mind will have reactivity and the other thing that I, I mentioned last time I'm mostly focusing here on what we might call negative judgments like in the examples I've given self you know negative self-judgment negative judgment of others we could talk about positive judgments as well because what really characterizes the judgmental mind is reactivity so let's go to our second slide to really go back to the core Buddhist teachings which makes some sense of this is the um, Buddhist teaching that he gave um, that he learned on the night of his enlightenment it's called dependent origination this is the core of the teaching where it says that every moment we have some kind of contact with the senses we see something we smell something we hear something we have body sensations with something we and so forth with every one of those there's a feeling tone pleasant unpleasant or neutral the vast majority probably neutral but sometimes pleasant or unpleasant when we're not paying attention we will tend to want the unpleasant like maybe a pleasant taste with uh, lunch or something maybe I have dessert I have a, uh, a pleasant dessert I want more and then if I'm not being aware I'll just grasp after more I'm calling the grasping a form of reactivity the other side is something unpleasant you know uh, I have an unpleasant interaction with someone that leads to some kind of I don't want this and I push away and we can we can grasp or push away on many many levels it can be at the physical level I grasp for a piece more of the dessert but the judgmental mind is one example of pushing away I'm pushing away my experience now what's key here is that the judgmental mind fits into this analysis and the kind that we're looking at where there's where I'm where I'm really having a negative self-judgment it's actually if we trace it back it's because at level number two the feeling tone there was something painful one of the ways that we're going to work with judgments is to actually trace the judgments back and we can do this sometimes experientially to something unpleasant or painful and sometimes when I notice what's unpainful the judgment isn't there in the same way you can let go of the slide now and this will be I didn't go into this so much last time 
This will be an important dimension of both understanding judgments and working with them. You know, so for example, when I was um, judging myself harshly for not having meditated enough, it was triggered by my thinking, you know, I haven't meditated enough, I haven't done enough spiritual practice. We could call that something painful. You know, it's a painful realization. We could probably trace it back to maybe a kind of sadness, you know. And when I actually meditated and stayed with the judgment, I could sometimes go back when I did a practice, something like what we did in the guided meditation. When I went into my body, I could sometimes feel, oh, I'm sad. I wish I had done more. When I actually would touch the sadness and be with the sadness, the judgment wasn't there in the same way. Interesting. Because it was, it was uh, but generally what happens in our judgment, because we're not mindful, we go right to the judgment. We go into reactivity, and we often don't even know that something was painful. We're just caught in the judgmental loop. And so one of the ways of working with it, particularly through mindfulness, is to actually noticing, oh, let me just see what's there. Is there something beneath it? You know, so my friend doesn't keep an agreement. I'm really judgmental. Can I tune into that? Oh, let me just bring up the judgment. Let me see what's, see in the, what's there in the body. Okay, what's there in the emotions? Oh, I'm kind of angry. I'm irritated. Let me hang out with the anger. Let me be with that for a while. When I practice like that and really stay with the anger, over time, it tends to settle and shift. And then my reactivity very often might not be there. If it's not such a big deal, it might not be there. And I can go speak to my friend about what happened without being judgmental anymore, without being reactive. Um, with some of our deeper ones, it's not so quick, right? Not so easy or not so quick. And some of this, when we get skilled at this, sometimes we can do it a little more quickly. So another example of that, this is from the same retreat where I was judging myself harshly. I started over time, uh, my, my mentor and teacher at that time, John Travis, had given me a practice when I notice a judgment let me notice it and then feel around my heart and feel around my body and see what's there. And I would, did that for, it was a two-month retreat, and I did that about 10 or 15 times a day, every day for two months. And I started noticing that there, oh, I'm caught in a judgmental mind when I go in, you know, into my body some, I can actually touch the pain. Oh, I'm sad. I wish I had meditated more in the last nine years. Wish I had done more retreats, right? And, oh, I'm sad. And then um, when I would stay with it, it would tend, especially if it wasn't such a big deal, it wouldn't be there in, in the same way. Another example. One day, I was on the lunch line at the retreat. It was raining. I was at the end of, near the end of the line. The line was moving very slowly. 
I thought I knew why the line was moving so slowly from having been at a lot of retreats. I thought, they're probably serving tacos. And they have the condiments lined up, so it takes a really long time to you get all the condiments. I actually proved to be accurate on that. But there I was outside, the line was moving slowly. I was really, really judgmental. I stayed judgmental for the next five or 10 minutes. Why don't they do that? I'm gonna leave a note for the, the cook. I'm, you know, why, why don't they just get it together with the condiment line so people can move, right? And then um, at a certain point I remembered, this is how spiritual practice works. I had been doing this practice of taking judgments and going into my body 15 times a day, but that particular moment, I didn't remember to do it. I was just irritated and judgmental, right? I didn't remember to do it, but then I remembered at a certain point, oh, oh, okay, let's do it. And I did it, and I went into my body, and I noticed, oh, there's impatience, a little irritation. Let me just be with that. I hung out with that for not much more than 30 seconds or a minute, and the judgments just dried up. Here again, maybe my point was a valid one. Maybe they could have arranged the condiments differently, right? I don't think I left them a note. <laughs> but I just, I just went on and um, the lunch was good that day. <laughs> I enjoyed the food, right? But this is something we can start exploring. And again, it's helpful to remember that model of going from contact to grasping because that's the overall teaching that makes some sense of where negative judgments come from. They don't just come because we see something that's bad or that needs attention, right? It comes because there's something painful to us that we actually don't notice and aren't with, and we go immediately to the judgment. That's why I've come to actually call judgments in the sense of the judgmental mind, they're a kind of defense mechanism. They prevent us from feeling that underlying pain. It's an interesting kind of defense mechanism because it causes a lot further pain, right? When I say that, my mind immediately goes to other strategies for defense like with countries that cause, purportedly try to defend us, but cause all sorts of problems. That's where my mind goes when I talk about judgments as a defense mechanism. A lot of our defense mechanisms cause more pain. Interesting, right? Interesting like that. And so um, that's a way to, to look at judgments that, you know, to see how they are like that. And so, again, the formula is work through the reactivity. One of the ways we can sometimes work through the reactivity is touching the underlying pain of negative judgments, hanging out with the anger, hanging out with the impatience, hanging out with the sometimes the sadness, hanging out with the sense of this isn't right. A lot of judgments have an ethical basis or even a basis in justice, right? 
hang out with the pain, oh, that wasn't right. But we can actually tune into how it's painful. Oh, there's, you know, that's not just, there's so much pain connected with that policy, right? I can notice that. And we tune into the pain and what that permits, again, is skillful action that doesn't come out of reactivity, that we could say comes more out of being responsive. That's the formula for our work with the judgmental mind. Transform the reactivity so that we no longer act out of reactivity, but can be, as it were, responsive rather than reactive. Again, easier, easier said than done. And I mentioned also that last time that a lot of our judgments are related to social conditioning. You know, that we internalize social conditioning and some of our judgments of self may really be connected with, with uh, social conditioning. It could be around gender or race or age or appearances and so forth, right? I mean, when we think about it, some of it's obvious, right? We know that there are certain social, cultural um, models for how people should be, particularly for women, right? More for women, I think, than for men. You know, I've talked to a number of women who get to age 50 or 60, and let's say they were previously looked at as beautiful, and now at a certain age, they find, oh, I don't think I'm being seen in the same way. And there can be a lot of self-judgment connected with that. The people have talked to me about that. It's very intense. Or what would be an example? Um, you know, for me, coming of age as a, as a man with male conditioning, typical male conditioning, who was not really given almost any guidance on how to be in touch with my emotions, I think I was sometimes very judgmental, you know, like in my 20s, I could notice it about how emotional certain people were. They're just locked into their emotion, you know, and so forth. That would come out of my conditioning, right? Uh, you know, more male conditioning. We could, we could, you know, we could look at that uh, a lot and look at other forms of conditioning. We internalize things, and then we, unless we've worked with the social conditioning, we'll express the conditioning towards ourselves and towards others, as in the examples that I gave. Now, it's a lot to look at. There's a lot there, right? It's not a lot of the, a lot of the problems our, in our society have that dimension as part of the, uh, often as part of the conditioning often linked with uh, institutional and structural issues. You know, we could go a lot into that. Um, last time, I talked about how, what are the, I talked about the tools that we can work with, and we looked at some of that in the uh, guided meditation. You know, my suggestion of first practice is really to look at uh, judgments, to start noticing them, use the label judgment when a judgment is there. Maybe you're at a meeting, just notice a judgment, label it, notice it in your meditation. If it lasts for a while, 
explore it with mindfulness. Very, very crucial. You know, as we did in the guided meditation, you can do that. Something comes up during the day. If something comes up in an interaction and we have the choice, take a pause and, and bring mindfulness to what's occurring. If you can take a two or three or four minute pause, a really crucial way to practice during the day. You know, don't have to do half an hour of formal meditation. Just pause. Let me be mindful of what's going on right now. Really crucial. We can notice judgments when they come up in our meditation. We can explore them. What's going on at the level of the body, just like in the uh, guided meditation. What's going on in the present moment. It's also possible, as we did in the guided meditation, to deliberately bring up judgments and study them. You know, I, I did this uh, in that initial long retreat where I was studying judgments a lot. Uh, you know, my mentor John Travis recommended at the end of every meditation, hang out for five or ten minutes and bring judgments up deliberately and can study them. What have been the ones that have been around the last 24 hours? And you can do that. Maybe better to do that if you can at the end of a daily meditation. Five minutes, bring up. What's it like in the body? Bring up one, hang out with it for a minute so it has some energy. It's there. And then explore. What's it like in the body? What's it like? What are the emotions? What's the narrative? Take, you know, Pretty brief, you can do that three, four, five minutes, right? Do that every day, there'll be learning that occurs. And so that's not, again, we usually aren't given the instruction in mindfulness practice to deliberately go into uh, difficult territory. Here, this can be really skillful. Better to do that when we have some starting stability. So that's why I recommend doing it when we've been meditating, you know, maybe after, at the end of our daily meditation. So we can do that. There's some ways of practicing. And then also, through that practice where we're with the judgment, can I actually feel what's beneath the judgment or what's driving the judgment? Can I feel some something that's beneath it? Again, as much as possible, do that experientially, not so much trying to figure it out or think it out. So it's not, not always so easy. One of the ways I do that is I just bring the attention into like the heart area and just invite myself to see what's there without expecting anything in particular to be there. Just hang out for a while and notice. And sometimes I'll feel maybe that anger or the, um, you know, the sadness. Sometimes that can happen. So we work with mindfulness in those multiple ways, both in formal meditation and in daily life. We can also bring in the heart practices. When I work with people on an ongoing basis, I say do at least 10 minutes a day of something like loving kindness or compassion practice. We could do that guided or that very simple self-compassion practice. Do that two or three times a day. A lot will happen if you do that. It only takes two or three minutes. Doesn't take a lot of time. Take little breaks like that. Things will move, actually, when one does that. Some people do gratitude practice or even uh, joy. Any of these heart practices, do them regularly. 
you know, I say 10 minutes a day, that'll really be extremely helpful. Also, I find it helpful because I, in the way I have explored and the way I teach working with the judgmental mind, uh, being aware of the body is really important. So I suggest having a body practice. Could be yoga, qigong, taking a walk, connecting with the body. That can be really crucial. As we study the judgments, we sometimes get a sense that the judgments are coming from something deeper. We may get a sense, oh, there's the same self-judgment or some variant of it keeping on happening, like I'm not okay or, or something, or, you know, I don't look okay, you know, I mean, related to, you know, like the, the self-mockingbird cartoon. You know, something is, or, you know, I keep messing up. You know, some harsh self-judgment like that. And what I have found in myself and in others is that, and this is going to a deeper level, is that a lot of our judgments, in fact, possibly the most chronic judgments, are generated by what I call limiting beliefs that often date from childhood. They may come from the family, they may come from the society, they may come from a mix of both. We may have different kinds of limiting beliefs which are connected with our most prominent self-judgments. And I think I'll introduce this topic now and not talk too much about it. But let's put on the uh, slide now, Carlita. These are some ways that limiting beliefs can appear. And they're actually at a deeper level and it can take some time to identify them. I may have a limiting belief that's related to abandonment. I don't I may have, you know, I've seen this in a number of people who were children when their parents divorced. And they developed a limiting belief, which was the best they could do as a child. If I get close to someone, that person will leave me. Very understandable to develop, let's say, as a seven-year-old when the parents divorce. But that judgment or that limiting belief may still be there with a partner. The partner wants to go away for the weekend and my limiting belief is behind me being really judgmental of my partner. What do you mean you're going away? Why are you doing this? And the, the limiting belief of abandonment will be beneath the surface, generating the judgment, something like that. Or I may have a limiting belief, I'm not really lovable, right? And I'm not really, I don't really know that that's there, but it could manifest in judgments. Oh, I messed up another relationship, or, oh, something is wrong with me. These limiting beliefs, until we notice them more, are beneath the surface. Perfectionism is a pretty well-known one, right? I need to, you know, it's some variant of, I need to be perfect to receive love. Again, we may have had something like that come from when we were children. And we were really rewarded when we were quote-unquote perfect. We did something right. And otherwise, maybe not. And I developed a limiting belief about um, I need to be perfect. Again, typically beneath the surface. What we do in the judgment work is gradually we bring these limiting beliefs to the surface. Other 
uh, limiting beliefs about myself. I am flawed as I am. I'm likely to mess up. I've worked with one person over a lot of years who was told by his father and his older brother, um, you're going to mess up. He was told that between the ages of 5 and 12. When I started working with him, he was in his 50s. He would wake up every day with the idea, I'm going to mess up today, coming out of this limiting belief. Another limiting belief which might come from something like a divorce, if something bad happens, it's my fault. I've noticed a lot of people have that. And so you can see there, there are other ones. My body is not okay. Core beliefs about relationships. My needs will not be met. Might be come out of a difficult childhood. You know, or I am not safe on my own. I don't belong. Others won't listen to me. Let's go down now to the second grouping. Yeah, we can go down all the way. And I might have beliefs about the world. The world isn't safe for me. You know, um, other people should be like me or they're bad and so forth. And again, there can be what the psychologists call implicit bias, um, where we have bias. Um, it's a kind of limiting belief. We have implicit bias towards people, typically, who are, who are in different uh, social groups, different genders, different ways that they've been, uh, had their racial identity constructed, uh, age, and so forth. Let's let go of this now. The slide. So this is a big one. A lot of our most regular judgments are linked with limiting beliefs. It can take some time to uncover them, but I wanted to bring that out. And they can be there a long time. And, you know, um, I found a, a cartoon about limiting beliefs. Let's go with that cartoon now, Carlita. And in this corner, still undefeated, Frank's long-held beliefs, <laughs> right? We could think of those as limiting beliefs, you know. Uh, they, they last a long time, right? Uh, they can last a long time. They can be pretty, pretty strong. And so what, you know, for our purposes, this is about starting to ask, you know, are there patterns behind my most regular judgments? Maybe we get a sense, oh, there's something similar in my judgments to the way my parents were judgmental. You know, because some of the limiting beliefs are almost like intergenerational. They get passed on, right? And so this is a deeper level of looking. And ultimately, we want to really, we don't want to rush the process. We can really transform the, uh, the limiting beliefs by starting to get aware of them, starting to see when they're really dominant, exploring them, getting a sense of what they're like in our bodies when they're there. But for most of us, it's, start, it's really just starting to get a sense of, oh, is there something there? You know, it, you know something like a limiting belief that's behind some of my most regular judgmental visitors. Again, I, I wanted to just put that out there. It can take time to occur. But ultimately, when we 
explore them deeply, get really, really familiar with a limiting belief, it becomes possible to have a different way of relating to the area of experience with the limiting belief in the past organized, maybe like my appearance or my uh, lovability or you know something like perfectionism. We can develop different ways of orienting ourselves and maybe I think maybe that's enough for now. I could say more about that maybe another time. So how to practice continuing further. Let me just give a few further suggestions for ways of practicing, then we can open things up. So keep exploring judgments, keep naming them in daily life, noticing them in our meditations. Produce a list of the top five. You can have your weekly top five judgments or top 10 if you'd rather have that, <laughs> right? And you can write them down, can really be helpful. That helps us to notice them. Keep naming them, noticing them, explore them with mindfulness when they appear in our meditations or our daily life. Get really familiar with how they are and particularly notice the emotions and the body. During the day, find when you have just maybe had a difficult thing happen, you're judgmental, take a pause, explore it some. What's going on right now? Let me bring, bring mindfulness to it. Bring in the self-compassion practice. You know, very brief, bring that in a few times a day. Um, you know, work to bring up the judgment deliberately, particularly at the end of a meditation, to keep exploring it uh, in more depth. So it's not just, uh, you know, not just hearing the talk, but really making this... Uh, uh, part of uh, every day's practice. Uh, if you can, if you're familiar with loving kindness, do this um, for, like I say, 10 minutes a day. Very crucial because, you know, if we, if we remember that teaching on contact to grasping, our negative judgments are coming out of something painful. We want to be able to access what's painful, but a lot of the work with the judgmental mind, therefore, means going into painful territory. How do we stay balanced with a generally, you know, balanced view in our lives if we're putting a lot of time into going into what's painful? This is where doing a daily practice like loving kindness, uh, doing things, if you're going a lot into the painful aspects of judgment, have as a regular practice every day, going into something which is beautiful and nourishing for you. Be with beauty. Be with uh, music you like. Do dancing. When you're going a lot into what's painful, have a regular daily way of going into what's nourishing, sustaining, that balances you, that helps you for going a little bit more into what's painful. See what that is. Again, could be being with certain people, could be taking a walk, being with uh, beautiful uh, trees, flowers, whatever. But I think we need to do that quite consciously and intentionally when we're going a lot into judgments. Have, have a way of balancing it out. Um, 
when there's a judgment in relationship to a relationship or an interaction, find ways of doing your inner work before you come back and talk to the person. Do some inner work, as we've explored. Um, be with the judgment. Be with it so that you actually touch what was painful. Oh, I can be with my anger or my sadness. That's a way of doing inner work that helps me when I go back to talk to the person. I may not be, and most likely will not be, as caught in being judgmental, which totally will change the conversation, right? And then there's a lot more to say if you know why speech practices, which I haven't talked about here, but we looked at that in July and August. And so those practices are on Dharma Seed, available. Bring in wise speech practices. I'll have to you know, bring in that in another time. But those can be very helpful. Yeah, how many people would like me to give a little more attention to the judgmental mind beyond what we've done here, maybe in future sessions? Okay. How many people have had enough of the judgmental mind? Thank you. <laughs> okay, a few people. Yeah, okay. How many people are judgmental about the judgmental mind? Okay, <laughs> okay. very good. Um, great, so let's take a moment now. Just take a moment and reflect. If this calls you to do more practice, how might I take this further? Maybe following some of the suggestions I made. Take a minute or two. How might I take this further? And then ask, or is there anything I'd like to ask about in our discussion period coming up? Anything I'd like to share, maybe from my own experience, something that you explored in the last week? Take a moment to see if there's anything you'd like to ask or share. Could be asking to, for me to clarify at some point. See what's there. Take a minute now. Great, so let's open things up now to discussion. And I see, I think Liz, you wanted to share something or ask something. Yes, thank you. Uh, you are, you've been incredibly thorough today, amazingly. I think you're really ready to write, to finish your book. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, quite astounding, thank yeah. you. Um, I wanna just mention something that I did last week. I live in senior housing with a lot of very, I'm 84, lots of other elderly folks. Um, it was a windy day. It was raining. It was stormy. 
I went downstairs uh, to the laundry room and uh, where people and to an open courtyard. It was it was around nine o'clock in the morning, and I see a friend of mine who is probably eighty-seven or eighty-eight or nine, slight, somewhat disabled, and I'm wondering why she's out there in the courtyard in the middle of this storm, and I see that she's been doing laundry. And as I was walking into the courtyard, a gust of wind came a very strong gust of wind and almost knocked me over. I had to hang on to a pole. I have not experienced that before this in the last 10 years. And I look at this woman and I was very, very angry that she was out there because I was afraid for her. I was afraid she would be knocked down. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and I said, this is really stupid that you are out here. This is so stupid. Why are you out here? Right. And um, it's not something that I normally do with other people. And um, so I thought about that for a day or two. And then I went to her and I apologized. Uh, and I said, you know, you are not stupid. I was just very scared for you. I was frightened that you'd be knocked over. Right. And I want to apologize. And she said, I accept your apology. So the, the quality here that I've been missing was empathy. Right. You haven't mentioned that, so I thought I'd just bring it up. Um, she needed to do her laundry because her helper was coming later. She didn't realize how stormy it was outside. So her need to do her laundry to be helpful to her, helpful. What was the need there? Why was she out there? Right. So, uh, so for me, who doesn't do this really well, it's good for me to notice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's a great example because, um, you know, looking back, we can see the distinction between, you know, we could see how there was a, you know, something underlying that was painful you were concerned about. You know, there was yes. pain connected with concern, which led to being judgmental as your best, you know, in the moment. That was your best way of dealing with the situation, of responding to the situation. And, um, you know, maybe she uh, felt the care and and yet the you know we can make the distinction between the way you spoke uh and the way you might ideally speak you know maybe with uh you know this is why we practice right and so but again we we're not simply condemning what you did because we can recognize that it was coming out of pain uh in a certain sense and concern right yes and that uh but that it was it came out of a certain reactivity and you know, uh, as you practice more, next time something like this is there, maybe you remember, oh, can I just tune in for 10 seconds, feel something, and maybe come out of more empathy, and, you know, maybe say something, what would, uh, you know, if you were going to say something skillful, it might be, oh, you know, I'm, uh, you know I'm, I'm guessing that you really, it's important for you to do your laundry, but I'm concerned about you and the weather. Right, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Right. Well, this was a big learning experience for me. I did it with two people, and I apologize. I apologize to one. I have yet to apologize to the other. But um, 
apologizing for me is an important thing, and uh, was a great learning experience. Yeah, that's a good example for everyone. How many can relate to that? Yeah, I think probably almost all of us. Yeah, any other sharing? You can raise your hand. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for a beautiful example. I don't know if beautiful is the right word, but powerful example. Uh, anyone else want to share, ask a question, share something about your last week of practice? You can either raise your hand and I can see you or go to use the raised hand function. Uh, Jasmine, please. Yeah. Hi, Donald. Thank you again for a, a beautiful session. Um, my question is about being with the emotion when we can feel it in our body, in yeah. our emotion sensing, beneath the judgment and those limiting beliefs that we discover. Yeah. At what point do we feel and be with the limiting belief with lots of compassion and then turn it because we know they're not true, but they were formed very early. At what point do we turn that corner into acknowledging it's, it's not true? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in my experience, we can't rush the process and it can take some time. It's very individual as to how long it takes. And we can actually, once we get a sense of a limiting belief and get a sense like, you know, I, I, I have two ongoing groups with people with whom I work, you know, and I experience the people who stay at least, we meet these, we meet monthly. After about six months of working together, a lot of people have a sense of limiting beliefs. Once you get a sense of that, you can get a pretty good sense, oh, it came from childhood, it's not really true, and yet it still controls me to some extent, especially when I'm stressed, right? And so we can get a sense of it not quite being right or true a lot before it actually isn't so strong. <laughs> we can get a sense of that, and that can be helpful, but it still can be gripping us even if we know it's not quite true. You know, it can, particularly when we're stressed. Um, and so, um, so what I generally suggest is really studying it a lot, you know, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, let's say I have a limiting belief, uh, you know, I, I messed up or something or I'm messing up again and something will happen and it'll be so intense that I just go right into that limiting belief. But if I've studied it some, I can know, oh, let me explore it now. And I don't really need to repeat, it's not really true. Because my, implicitly, that's my understanding. But the key there is then to be mindful. And then at a certain point later, when it comes up, uh, we can actually um, notice it. And the way I tend to work is notice it and at a time when people have done a lot of this inner work with the limiting belief, then I typically give a guided practice to help us be in touch with what I call a transformed understanding or a reversal of the limiting belief. So it might be, um, it's not necessarily the logical opposite. You know, it's, um, you know, if I'm perfectionist, I notice my perfectionism at a certain point, um, maybe I have a transformed understanding that, you know, um, could be 
I can learn from mistakes. <laughs> Could be that. It's not a direct logical opposite, but it might be a way that I organize my experience. Mistakes are okay. Could be something like that. So-called mistakes or something like that. And gradually, what the way I tend to work is to encourage people to, at a certain point, not too early, not in a rushed way, get a, get a sense of what that transformed understanding is, and then what supports that transformed understanding getting stronger. It might be, I'm about to do something where I might not do it perfectly. Let me be attentive. Notice if I get into the limiting belief, and then just remember, oh, I'm learning. Something like that. Or it could be to be with friends who really uh, have that attitude as well. Yeah, so th those are some examples. Yeah. Oh, that, that's so wonderful. The transformed understanding and then to live it, to, to take a step into it and dip, dip the toe and build confidence. That's with right. It. Gradually live it. Again, not to be rushed, but one can do it in gradual ways as you go deeper. I, I give, you know, the way I work, I tend to give a lot of focus for really getting to know the limiting belief uh, before you try to uh, get rid of it, so to speak. You don't really get rid of the limiting beliefs because they're in the neural pathways. What one does is one builds uh, an alternative and strengthens it, and you try not to you know, give any more energy to the limiting belief, but it doesn't really go away. The person I was mentioning who had the limiting belief, I'm going to mess up today, he had done an enormous amount of work, but still a stressful situation comes up. The limiting belief comes back for a while, but not anywhere as long as it used to. Yeah. Oh, so helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for, for bringing it up, Jasmine. Maybe time for maybe one more, if there is one. Possibly one or two if they're brief. Again, you can raise your hand. I could see you if you want to. Just ask something or share something again from your last week. Anything you explored. You know, what was helpful from the last week of paying attention to judgments? What what was helpful? Anyone want to share that? Doesn't have to be doesn't have to be real, real deep. Yeah, um, please, Carlita. Thanks, Donald. I'll share one thing that I noticed that's very brief, is when you describe the limiting beliefs, what helped me was a visual yeah. of recognizing when I'm in the judgmental mind, I'm all right here. Yeah. And then the link to my body was to think of my mind, my heart, and my body. Yeah. And just... Go to my feet, then go to my heart. Yeah. What am I sensing between those two? And then that dissipates all of the confusion yeah. and activity in here. And yeah. I felt the settling. So it was helpful for me to think of it that way. Mind, heart, body. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that can be really, really helpful. It's a really good example because the judgmental mind typically expresses itself of what I sometimes call looping. It loops and loops and loops at the level of thinking in the mind, right? It's just a narrative that keeps on repeating. 
So I like, I think, working it in two ways. One way of working with it is actually to see the correlate at the level of the emotions in the body. So going into the body there and seeing that the judgmental mind, it actually, the way I, the language I use is that the judgmental mind actually organizes experience or the limiting beliefs organize experience. When I'm in the control of the limiting belief or the judgment, you know, I notice my body, my, like, some of my most pronouncements, my hands are a little bit tense, my heart area is a little bit caved in. That's really valuable to look at. And then we can also really tune into the body, maybe the feet, the heart area, and sometimes we can get a different perspective and it can, in a way, settle. And I think that's what you're talking about. The judgmental mind is not there in the same way. So I think both can be, both can be helpful. Yeah. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Okay. I think we're, we're at time. Um, that's great. Carlita, it's great to know that you're doing the practices too. Yay. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Um, great. So let's, let's uh, set intentions again. And I'll, I'll be back in April. I'm going to uh, have been on four weeks of retreat. And I, I like to uh, give a talk right after four weeks of retreat. So next time I'll be here, I will have come from pretty much four weeks of silence, hopefully going deeper. You know, you never know. You never know what happens. But uh, I like, I, I love to talk right after coming back from a long retreat. So I'll do that. I'll, my next, the next Wednesday will just be a few days after I come back. And I'll talk the first two Wednesdays. So thank you for your good wishes for my retreat time. And let's then set your intention again for what may have been helpful from our session today and how you want to take it further. And Maybe about the judgmental mind, but maybe it was about something else. And that's okay. You know, maybe it was about something else you want to take further, some insight that you had, not even necessarily related to the judgmental mind, but it may be about taking our practices further. So take a minute right now, minute or two. What are the intentions going forward? Then we'll close in our usual way with the dedication of merit, a very traditional practice, acknowledging our interconnection with others. We practice very much for ourselves. May the benefits of our time together be there for us individually. May we each benefit from our practice here and more generally. May our time together be a benefit for those in our lives. And then beyond our own circles, may our time together be a benefit ultimately for all beings, often in mysterious ways. 
May our time together benefit all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want to uh, unmute, we can say goodbye to each other. I'll do my, my Zoom goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy your retreat. Thank you. Enjoy your retreat, Donald. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate you so much. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for your good wishes for retreat. And for Liz, thanks for your good wishes for completing my book, hopefully soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We'll read it. Yeah. You know I'm going to nag you. You know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, will not be interpreted as being judgmental. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.